Before moving to Canada, you know, the truth is I had to sort of prepare myself sort of mentally and emotionally to moving to this country. And, you know, I had to prepare in moving to Canada on things that I knew of Canada. It was based on just these three things because there were only three things that I knew for sure about Canada before moving here. And those three things were, first thing was Wayne Gretzky, the great one. So I had to know that if I moved here, then hockey would have to be the thing that I got involved in and that I would fall in love with. The second thing was, thanks to the movie, Cool Runnings, if you don't know the movie, it's about a Jamaican bobsled team, I figured out that Canada gets so cold that your hair snaps off. So I had to prepare for the cold. The last thing and the third thing is the 2011 Vancouver riots. Look, what do you need to know about Australia? If you need to know one thing only is that Australia was built on the back of convicts. Our history, the history of Australia is based on the British Empire sending all their criminals, all their crooks over to Australia. And that's how Australia was built. So as an Australian and as a criminal, when I heard about the Vancouver riots, that it was a riot over one game from one event, I thought to myself, well, Canada, that's the place for me. No, but the truth is this, I figured out, and as I lived on those sort of truths that I thought were fully true, but also those misconceptions of Canada and living out that, you soon start to find out that some of these things are not true at all. But the truth is, is, is that when I moved here to Canada eight years ago now, I found out as, as Canadians, we're not that violent. We're actually quite loving and peaceful people. But in regards to the cold, the cold, yeah, it might not break your hair, but it will break your soul. And so as we go on, what I needed to know was as I immersed myself, you know, in Canadian culture, in its history and in its people, and came to discover the full truth of what it means to be Canadian. Then I started to live out on those truths and not on those misunderstandings. Look, our passage today comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3. And it's, and it's three points that I want to sort of wrestle with today. And those three points are this. First off, that there is a consistent truth. Second, that there is a telling truth. And thirdly, there is a constant truth. So let's go with the first one, a consistent truth. Okay, so this idea of something being acting or done in the same way over time. Okay, it's just consistently the same. So I'll read for us in big segments throughout, throughout today, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I'll just do verses 1 to 5. But understand this, that in the last day there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, 
heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. So Paul, the Apostle Paul who's writing this letter, he's actually currently in prison at this time. And it's almost sort of the, at the end of his life because he's going to be killed soon. But he's writing this letter to a very young pastor by the name of Timothy, encouraging him as a young pastor to keep going. But Paul continues to warn Timothy of not just false teachers, but also, also of their false teachings. This is a warning because the false teachers have infiltrated the church and has gone beyond that, not just the church and the people of the church, but also to the homes of the people. Not only does Paul, the Apostle Paul warn, but he goes on to list the result of these teachings. This list, if you look at it, is still relevant today as it was when Paul wrote it centuries ago. Think about it, even in the time of Paul and of Greek mythology, there was an issue what Paul brings up in the very first part of the list, which is people being lovers of self. See, in Greek mythology, there's a character by the name of Narcissus. And he's famous because, you know, he had extreme beauty. But there was an, also an issue with Narcissus, which was he was unable to receive love because his love was fully enveloped on himself. And the story goes in this mythology is that Narcissus, as he's walking, he sees a pool of water and he sees his reflection in the water. He's so captured by his beauty that he stays there the entire time and then he eventually dies staring at himself. That almost sounds like me every morning when I look in the mirror. But, or think about it in, in maybe in, even our terms, in, in simpler ways, not in evil ways, just in simple, you know, safe ways, which is think about when you're given a physical photo, a group photo that you're in. When you're given that or if you're tagged on it online. You know what the natural thing that we do is as people? When we, when we see this group photo or a family photo, whether we're tagged online or whatever it is, what's the automatic thing that we do? We always go out and look for ourselves in the picture to see how we look, to see if we've got the, the best angle and the best side. There is something about self-love that is sort of not taught and that it comes natural to us but it's actually something we love to hear about. We love to hear stories about who we are and, 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 and stuff that sort of uplifts us. Think about even graduation speeches. Can someone explain to me why at every single graduation speech, we always seem to have the same speechwriters because there are terms that are constantly used over and over again that sort of celebrate the individual, celebrate the self. Those terms can be stuff like, you did it, and follow your dreams, and you can change the world, and you can do anything, and you be you. 
And when we go out and we hear those amazing speeches and we go into the real world and when the real world rubs up against us and says, uh, not so fast. We can easily turn that when people go up against us, the individual, and against our sort of internal self-love, we overreact and we can tend to call that hate speech. That if you deny myself love, that means now you hate me. But Christians are no better off. Some of the best-selling Christian books, and I use the word Christian very loosely here, some of the most popular Christian books are not about Jesus. Some of the most popular Christian books are about us, you, the individual, self-love. There's books like The Prayer of Jabez, Breaking through to the blessed life, the idea of you can do this and then attain these things. If only you sort of do this and pray and believe this. Or better still, there's a book called Your Best Life Now. Eventually that book became so popular, Your Best Life Now, it actually came out with a board game. And the board game, if you didn't know, if you haven't seen it, the board game actually within the game itself, it came with a mirror in the game. And part of the game was for you, was for you too, as an individual and of self-building and self-encouraging was to look in the mirror and then say positive things about yourself. See, these Christian self-help books have sold in the millions because they sell you on the fact that it's all about you. See, according to Paul, the first thing on this list is that false teaching will always lead people to believe that it's always about you, about us, the individual. And we are seeing this sort of loving on the self continue to unfold in our, sort of, in our culture today in big and small ways. But from time to time, you know, what is written there and all the way until now, the message from Paul's time to our time has remained consistently the same. That self-love is the greatest type of love. The message has not changed throughout the years. When you look at the, the, the list, the list points out other issues as well. Paul lays out the results of these false teachings by showing us that the that sort of the, that love that God calls us to is sort of misplaced. It's reversed. When you look at that list, it's sort of turned upside down. It's reversed. It replaces the love of God all the way to the love of self. So what happens then if we reverse the order of love? In Matthew chapter 22, verses 35 to 40, Jesus says a few interesting things in regards to whether it be love, of self-love, of love of God. But in one instance in Matthew chapter 22, he says this, and one of them, a lawyer asked him, that is asked Jesus, to test him. Teacher, 
which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said, that is Jesus, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus is commanding with our whole human self, all of us, body, mind and soul, to love God first, then love others, then love yourself. In that exact order. Because if we learn to love God first and foremost, then we're going to be more capable of loving others and then loving ourselves. But we have taken that order and reversed it. The Apostle Paul, by the end of this list that he gives, is still referring to Christians within the church. That when self-love is first, the result ends up being that Christians will end up having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Think about it. In our culture today, from Hollywood celebrities to Christian celebrities, when we find out there's been this great moral failure, we're shocked, we're surprised, we're outraged. We question everything, including all the work that these people have done, from books to movies to songs, through everything that they have produced. We question it. We want now nothing to do with the individual, and we also want nothing to do related to the individual. That's what's happening. Historically, you know, we've taught the church that blasphemy is using God's name in vain. For example, Christians have always been taught to never say things like, oh my God, or Jesus Christ. That's one way to look at it. But also another way to look at it is to claim that you're Christian, that you're a believer of Jesus, but live like he doesn't exist. One of, the, one of the results would be that people then deny the power of God when they see that. They deny that Jesus himself doesn't have the power to transform or change people's lives. They end up then calling Christians hypocrites. I actually think that's one of the reasons why young people now, there's this wave of now young people sort of deconstructing their faith. Because what they see at home and then what they see on a Sunday doesn't sort of equate. How can you talk about Jesus but the rest of the week you don't live like him? And we deny his power. See, the, the false teachers and the false teachings have a consistent message for a reason. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus sort of speaks on that. In, in Matthew chapter 7, in one of um, Jesus' greatest and longest sermons, near the end of it in chapter 7, in verses 15 and 16, Jesus says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing 
but inwardly are ravenous wolves and you will recognize them by their fruits. See, this is a warning from Jesus, but what he actually says before that makes me scratch my head because it's sort of interesting. Because in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Church, there are many who will consistently hear of a gospel message that is about you, about the individual, and just about self-love. And many will consistently enter the wide gate. Second, a telling truth. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 15, Paul writes this to Timothy and also to us. You, that is Timothy, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering that happened to me in Antioch, in Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Here in the West, the truth is, we like comfort. We talk about comfort all the time, in every way. Like those times I would leave the house to go out in public. And most times, Laura, my wife, will always, as I'm leaving the house, give me the, you know, the, the wife once over. And then she'll ask the question, are you sure you want to go out like that? Of course I'm sure. I'm walking out the door, aren't I? And I walk straight back into that closet to get changed. But for most of us, like going out the door like me, like I'm thinking comfort. We're mostly just thinking comfort. And we, that's how we talk about our sweatpants. And that's how we talk about food and comfort food and all those things after a really hard day, deservedly so. But the parts of the Bible that reminds us as Christians that there's going to be Christian persecution and Christian suffering, they're really hard for us to accept because they rub up against our Christian comfort. We don't like that. Persecution and suffering was for other people, not for us. You know what it does when it does rub us the wrong way? We go from comfort to complaining because we're not comfortable any, anymore. Northview, we have some of the most generous and loving people here. 
since I've been here now for over 12 months, I've received amazing gifts from, from food to gift cards to, to coffee to even a handshake to a hug. I've even received as a gift a telescope. So we are a bunch of like great, loving, generous, welcoming people. But there's a flip side, Northview. Because of our comfortable, comfortableness, because of our history of being here in Abbotsford for this many years, because everything has gone right in so many particular ways, when things get uncomfortable, Northview, out of all the churches in all my years of nearly 20 years of ministry, Northview, I haven't heard as much complaining elsewhere than here. But the Bible calls us not to be Christian complainers. We're called to be people of praise. Not of, not of yourself, not of what we've done, but what of who Christ is and what he has done. If you're going to complain, why don't you complain that people are dying every single day and going to hell without hearing the gospel? But yet we complain about discomfort, about I said this, you said that, vaccine, no vaccine, we should meet, we shouldn't meet, quarantine, lockdown, masks, no masks. The Apostle Paul goes on to remind Timothy not only of what Paul preached, but also of how Paul lived. So for Paul, persecution and suffering was all normal, a normal part of the Christian life. He's telling Timothy, get used to it because you've seen it in me. You're going to see it in yourself. Don't be surprised. But Paul is encouraging Timothy. Okay, now that suffering's coming your way and persecution's coming your way, as it did me and all those before you, Paul encourages Timothy, guess what? Continue then, not in complaining and not in self-love, but continue in the word. Because if you continue to complain, if that's where you're going to go, there's a telling truth in that of who you are and what you believe in. But Paul's encouraging Timothy, hey, get in the word, continue in it in preaching it, in teaching it, in studying it, in reading it. See, the word Timothy has seen and heard Paul preach, but also live out. The word has been read to him from a very young age, from his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. And he's reminding, Paul's reminding Timothy of that. Hey, remember in your childhood what you were taught and what was read to you? Continue in the word because it would sort of lead you to a knowledge of God's truth. And when it leads you there, you will praise and not complain. So why is the word so important? From childhood to adulthood. In the book titled, um, Not a Fan, Becoming a, a Completely Committed Follower of Jesus. Pastor Carl Ottoman says, what you win them with is what you win them to. 
That's the most for, sort of famous catchphrase in his book. The idea behind the quote is, his concern is that if we win a generation or kids or adults or whomever, from childhood to adulthood, if we win them over with, with fun and with games and with a light show and with a smoke machine, if we win them over with those things, then that's exactly what we've won them over to. So we take out the fun and games, we take out the lasers, and we take out the smoke machines, there'll be nothing left. The people won't be there for that because that's what you've won them with. But if we win them with Jesus, then we have won them to Jesus. So Northview, are we becoming like a few other Canadian churches where during the week the most important thing that we sort of, un, you know, verbally or unverbally and physically and mentally, emotionally encourage our church that maybe during the week hockey practice is the most important thing? Are we teaching our kids now to trade the God who created the heavens and the earth with a hockey stick? Because we realize, are we, are we teaching our kids to sort of, hey, get the fun and get the energy throughout the week, you know, whether it be playing games, there's nothing wrong with those things, but are we teaching our kids that, whether it be hockey practice or gym or hanging out with friends and having a good time throughout the week, do all those things, build it up to, so that you can make it to Sunday. Or are we teaching them that daily being with Jesus is the best thing for them? But what do we do? Especially when Paul brings up that Timothy has this beautiful, long Christian heritage where his grandmother and his mother and even Paul is reading scripture and teaching him scripture every single day. So what do we do if my family does not follow Jesus? Or what do we do if my family does follow Jesus but doesn't read the Bible every day or at all? I want to acknowledge um, the singles of our church. So if you're single and you call Northview home, I'm so happy that you're here. You know that Northview wouldn't be Northview and wouldn't be the church without you. We need you and we want you here. I know that for some of, some of our singles here at Northview, your first and sort of primary goal might be to find a spouse. And if that's you, hey, I am more than willing to get you help. But don't ask me for help. I know nothing about dating. But I do want to encourage all our singles out there. To those sort of like who want to get married or for those who don't want to get married, can I encourage you to put all your time and energy into your spiritual family? What I want you to know is that you have mothers and fathers, uncles and aunties, brothers and sisters, nephews and nieces that are all called to walk alongside you in particular in the word. If you look around the room, if you think about people you know, 
We're all called to walk alongside you and each other in the word. But if we don't, there is a telling truth, whether it be at home and when no one's looking, there's a telling truth when we don't dive and sit and read the word of God. So to our families and singles out there, don't turn this thing upside down. And don't try to do this on your own. Though we are encouraged to read on our own, but we're also encouraged that we have a church family to walk alongside us as we read the word together. We call that church. Lastly and third, there is a constant truth. That no matter the seasons, there's a constant truth that continually happens and that needs to be heard. The Apostle Paul concludes this chapter with one of the most sort of popular and famous verses in Scripture in regards to Scripture. And it says this, All Scripture is God breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What Paul is saying here is the Bible is enough. The Bible is enough. But that's not something we believe in or practice. You know that in recent years, some of the best-selling Christian books are about either children or adults dying, going to heaven, coming back to earth, and then these people writing about their experience. And Christians are eating those books up because they want to know what it's like up there. What was Jesus like? Did you talk to him? What was the conversation? What the angels you know, look like? What do they do? All these things. We want to know more. We want more, just like we want more cowbell. If we believe truly that the word is enough, not just for our lives, but for our happiness, our joy, our satisfaction, if we believe it was sufficient for all things, we would constantly be in the word, will we not? But the truth is we don't believe that the word is enough. We don't believe this is enough. We don't believe Jesus is enough. That's why we run to other things. That's why we continue to look for other things in the world to please us, to satisfy us, to fill that void. We run away from this. We don't run to this. But the Apostle Paul is saying, continue in the word because it's enough for everything and more. And in the last 10 years, we're actually seeing now a new trend in the church. It is what I call ideology versus theology. So an understanding or a teaching or, or, or doctrine. But I like, because I like ideology versus theology because it rhymes. Ed Stetzer, a pastor in Chicago, uh, Chicago, pfft, is, doing a, is actually doing a further study on this trend, this trend of ideology versus theology. 
In part of his early going studies, he's finding out in past years, centuries ago, hundreds of years ago, um, Christians would die over doctrine. They would die for certain beliefs of the Bible, like whether it be baptism. Christians would die over the belief of baptism and other things as well. But he's saying in North America that trend is actually changing drastically. In Pastor Ed Stetz's study, his early studies, he's saying the new trend is that, and these new trends, people are not willing to die for. They're willing to fight you on it and post it on social media and call you out on other things, but they're not willing to physically die for it. He's starting to see Christians now join churches or attend churches or follow churches or follow celebrity pastors based on what the church does rather than what the church teaches. So basically he's saying that the trend is this, that churches now and followers of these churches are more focused on what the church believes and teaches on social justice or social work. That is this particular church fighting for all human rights and gender rights and all these things. And if they don't, I'm out. That's now the thing that people are chasing after. We have turned this thing, even this part of scripture, upside down. We've reversed it. We are more in love with the works of the church than the works of Christ. We are more concerned about what the church does rather than what the church teaches. As long as we do right, I don't care what you teach. Church, the Bible does teach on good morals and it does teach on good works. But that's not its primary focus. Scripture is mostly about God and his name is Jesus. That's what it's mostly about. So let me conclude with an analogy. I want you to sort of imagine this. Imagine if Jesus came back for a visit. I'm not talking about the, the second coming. Well, I'm not talking about the ridiculous Left Behind series. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm just talking about a visit, like a, like a checkup, like a, a doctor checking up on our health and, and just give us, to tell us how we're doing. So Jesus is going to come back to earth just to see how we are doing. Jesus then decides that, well, for whatever reason, he's going to make his visible and, and physical presence here. He decides his visit in Abbotsford, British Columbia. And the only place that could work for us here in Abbotsford would be possibly the Abbotsford Centre or formerly known as the Abbotsford Entertainment and Sports Centre. That's the only place that we could host this event where Jesus comes to visit. And when the news breaks out that Jesus is going to sort of say a few words, billions of people now flock to Abbotsford. And every news outlet is here from all around the world to hear from Jesus because word has gotten out. For some reason, Mark Birch is hosting this event. 
I don't know why, but that's how the this story goes. And Pastor Mark Birch, in the Abbotsford Centre, it's completely packed. He's up there on stage. Jesus is sitting there on his chair. There's other representatives as well. But Mark walks up to the podium, grabs the microphone and says, and then turns and looks at Jesus and said, my Lord and my Saviour is here. And he has a few words that he wants to share with us. And no one cares what Mark says. We just want him, get off the stage, Mark. No one wants to hear from you. We just want to hear from Jesus. Jesus then sort of walks up to the podium and as he does, as he starts to walk to the podium and he gets there, it goes dead silent. Everyone around the world sort of holds their breath. They draw kind of closer to the television screens, the ones outside of the Abbotsford Centre, to the ones at home. They draw in closer, they hold their breath. Those who are across the world are doing the same thing. Or those who are listening on the radio, they turn up the volume, they put the ear closer to the speaker. And then Jesus proceeds to grab the microphone. Then he grabs a Bible and then he says, everything I've ever wanted to tell you is in here. Read it. Church, I know we want more. I know we want potentially more miracles and we want more blessings from Jesus. But from beginning to end of all of scripture, it has always been and constantly be, it will constantly will be for the future, will be about Jesus. In the words of Pastor Kevin DeYoung, all of scripture is knowable, is necessary, and is enough. Let's continue to be people of the word. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it reveals to us our desperate need for you. And we're so thankful that it reveals you and that that is enough. Jesus, would you continue to help us to make it less about the other things of the world? Help us to make it less about us and help us to Turn these things around and make it with body, mind and soul that we would love you more, that we would love each other more and that then we are able to love ourselves better. So Jesus, I thank you for your grace that you continue daily, give more of yourself to us. And in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.